Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, how are you today? Well, Mike, I'm glad you asked. Uh, I'm pretty good. And I'd just like to say you're a funny guy, Mike. I like you. That's why I'm going to kill you last. <laughs> Get to the chopper! <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I am familiar with one of the movies that we're doing tonight. Well, both of them, actually. But So I, I caught that reference. Uh, I, I recognized oh, the quote. Oh, it was a reference. Oh, oh are you just, you're just throwing oh, yeah, it out sorry, there. Oh, yeah, it's a reference. Yeah, okay. If you want to call it a reference, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, Phil. Thanks. I feel very loved right now. Yeah, just let off some steam, Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, for those people who might be confused about what we're talking about, why don't you fill them in on what we will be discussing in this episode? Yes, we will be going after the ending of Pixar's The Incredibles, but before that, we'll be looking at Arnold Schwarzenegger's Commando. Which, of course, is where your quote just now came from. Yes, of course. That's right. Yes. That's that's what I meant. <laughs> right, right. If we're sticking <laughs> with that story, of course. <laughs> and uh, and what else do we have on tap in this episode? Uh, we'll also be doing the top 10 films of 1973, and our Mighty Morphin mini-feature will be Interviews with the Cast of Outsiders, which is hitting its second season. Yes, a very popular show here in the U.S. on WGN uh, with some, some really great uh, talent attached to it that we will be talking to just a little bit later. Uh, but for now, let's jump into our endings. And, uh, well, Phil, since you started things off by, uh, you know, supposedly quoting uh, <laughs> Commando, why don't, we, why don't we start with that one? Okay, um... Let's get ready to rumble. Okay, so tell us what Arnie gets up to in Commando. Okay, well, Commando, 1985, directed by Mark Lester, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, Ray Don Chong, Alyssa Milano, Bill Duke, and Dan Hedaya. So retired Delta Force Specialist Colonel John Matrix, played by Arnie, is informed by his former superior that his teammates have been killed recently. Shortly thereafter, a group of mercenaries attack Matrix at his mountain home. He and his daughter Jenny, played by Alyssa Milano, are abducted and separated. Matrix meets the mercenaries' leader, a man called Arius, played by Dan Hedaya, who wants Matrix to perform an assassination in his home country of Valverde, where he wants to stage a coup. Matrix boards a plane to Valverde with a guard, but kills the guard and escapes before the flight takes off. Then he enlists the help of Cindy, a flight attendant, played by Ray Don Chong, and hunts down and kills some of Arius's men, finding out where Jenny is in the process. Matrix heads to Arius's compound and kills several thousand henchmen, I believe, uh, before killing <laughs> yeah. Arius himself. Matrix is then reunited with his daughter Jenny, and his former commander shows up and invites him to rejoin the special forces. But Matrix declines, and he, Jenny, and Cindy leave together. Very nice. And that is short and sweet because it's an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, so it's really not the most plot-heavy movie in the world. It's a it's a short and sweet kind of film, but with lots of death. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> But it's fun. It's a fun movie. Oh, definitely. Lots of fun. You know, classic 80s action film, which, you know, obviously uh, we, we love. Yeah, and it's, it's funny. The, the 80s action films just do have that kind of, I mean, the, they are very cheesy. The dialogue's often pretty bad and the effects nowadays haven't aged that well, but there's still something about them. Yeah, yeah. They're... They, just, they just have, and nowadays action movies just don't seem to have that. I don't know what it is. I know. And I hate to sound like that back in my day kind <laughs> of guy, you know, and there are still some great action movies being made these days, but they are, they tend to be fewer and farther between I find. And they don't have that sort of sense of, of fun yeah. that, um, you know, they had back in the eighties, which I think is why, as we talked about last week, why I love the fast and furious movies so much, because I think they, they kind of harken back to that, uh, the, that 80 sensibility, at least in spirit, you know, where they're just, you know, Stupid yeah. and over the top, and, and that's okay. That's, that's a fine point. Yeah, I think Fast and Furious. Yeah, you're right. That does have a, that does hue to the uh, the 80s style of action, doesn't it? Right, right, yeah. exactly. All right, well, why don't you kick things off, Phil, and give us your day after. Okay, Matrix, Jenny and Cindy fly back to Matrix, Matrix's house. Uh, they clean up, have something to eat, and then they all slowly begin to fall asleep because it's been an exhausting few days. Before he drifts off, Matrix watches Jenny. The relief he has for saving his daughter is immense. He was glad his skills didn't let him down and meant he could save her. 
but then it was because of his past that she was taken in the first place. So it's, he's a bit conflicted with that, but uh, he finishes stitching up his wounds and goes to sleep. Cindy ends up staying with them for a few days. Her and Matrix grew, grew close, but they both realise romance is not on the cards. Matrix is worried about Cindy and Jenny's mental state after the kidnapping and rescue, but they seem okay. Major General Franklin Kirby, uh, Matrix's old boss, he turns up just to make sure they're doing all right, and also to debrief Matrix. And they also ask Matrix again about rejoining uh, the, the squad, but uh, Matrix says no, and they both laugh and smoke cigars. Kirby leaves, and Matrix and Jenny fly Cindy home. And that's my day after. Very nice. I have to say, listening to you say it out loud a few times, John Matrix has to be one of the best action movie names like ever. Yeah, yeah. It's. I always thought thought it was a bizarre choice. It sounds more like from a sci-fi kind of uh, action movie. Right, right. It does, but it's yeah. just very. Um, I don't yeah. know. It's just very like you know manly and and over the top. I guess. So. Yeah. I also <laughs> like, find it. Nobody's really named John Matrix except for an Arnold Schwarzenegger character. I also know? seem to find it hard to say, especially when it's Matrixes. Right, right. Matrix's house. <laughs> well, because technically the plural would be matrices, but you can't Matrice do that here. Matrices so. house. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, what about your day after? All right, well, Matrix, Cindy, and Jenny land at the airport and deplane. As they're leaving the airport, however, Cindy is hit by a bus and killed. <gasps> Who's driving the bus? Who's driving the bus? Well, it could it could be that psycho killer from way back in whatever episode that was. Uh, as, as we know, that's my that's my go to uh, method for disposing of characters I don't like. Yes, yeah. I always found Ray Don Chong a little bit annoying in this movie. Mm, okay, yeah, okay. I think it was her or the character. Well, right. I'm not saying she's a bad actress. I just mean the character and, and kind of the way she played it, like the whole, you know, that whole character. Just I was never that big a fan of her. It did seem like they were just going, oh, we need somebody, you know, possible love interest and also a sidekick. So we'll, Right, yeah. exactly. So Yeah, so, seemed a bit forced. Yeah. Fair enough, she's dead. Let's carry now on. she's out of the picture thanks to that tragic bus accident. <laughs> so Matrix is sad for a minute, but then he lights a cigar and says, you've been busted. <laughs> So, oh my god! <laughs> sorry, no, it's I, you know it's the it's Schwarzenegger. It's, you gotta have it's the one-liners, perfect, yeah. right? It's perfect, yeah. So Matrix and Jenny then return home, and life returns to normal for a while. Soon, however, Child Protective Services come calling. It turns out that Jenny's mom, a woman named Angela Bauer, has recovered from being missing or dead or whatever she was in the movie. I don't know where she was, yeah, but yeah. Uh, she's she's back, and she wants Jenny back. She sues for custody and wins, and Matrix is heartbroken when Angela takes Jenny away from him to live in a big house in the suburbs. John can't stand being away from Jenny, so he puts Jenny's new house under surveillance and launches a plan. Late one night, he assassinates Angela's live-in housekeeper, a man named Tony Maselli, and makes it look like an accident. After a few days, John shows up and convinces Angela to give him the job, allowing him to be close to Jenny and fill in the job opening in Angela's house. Angela warns John that he will have to do his job well or she'll fire him, and John replies, Hey, who's the boss? <laughs> I can't do Schwarzenegger, but I wanted to work in who's the boss somehow. So. Oh, brilliant. So... <laughs> because, you know, Alyssa Milano. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's terrible, but I couldn't get it out of my head once it was in there. So. No, it's good. It's good. Uh, and that's where we're leaving things for now. With uh, with uh, I, I do have to admit I really like the concept of a sitcom with Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> as the live-in like housekeeper. But he is like an action hero housekeeper. <laughs> right, yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I find that amusing. So No, I, I could see that. Yeah, I think it's probably a script knocking about back in the 80s and 90s for something like that. I'm, I'm sure there was. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, how about your immediate aftermath then? Okay. A few weeks later, Matrix and Jenny are fine. He has to fly off because he's meeting up with some old friends. So he's he's flying off to a city. It doesn't matter which city because it's top secret. It's classified. I can't tell you. Uh, while he's on the flight, though, he's pleasantly surprised to see Cindy working on that flight. And uh, it's been a while since they last met. And they uh, talk and catch up. And Cindy's doing fine as well. Uh, you know, they have a bit of a chat. And it's quite a pleasant flight. And Matrix is relaxing. However, while they are talking, Matrix starts noticing some of the fellow passengers acting strangely. He motions to Cindy. And after what they've been through, she, she trusts Matrix implicitly and moves casually to tell the pilot to be careful. Something's going down. Uh, Matrix's instincts are right. The plane is about to be hijacked. All he has is a pen, a paperclip, and a book. The hijackers don't have a chance. <laughs> And that's my immediate aftermath. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. Very nice. So what about, uh, what happens uh, What happens with your, who's the boss meets Arnold Schwarzenegger? All right. Well, things settle into normal at the Bauer house. John has an unfortunate habit, though, of beating up the cable guy or delivery man whenever they come to the house because he just assumes they're assassins out to kill him or kidnap Jenny. 
When one of them presses charges, the local cops learn of his background in special forces and try to make a deal with him. They offer to let him go undercover at a local school as a kindergarten teacher and expose a criminal, and then they'll drop all the charges. Matrix considers it and then turns them down, saying that it would be ridiculous and that no one would buy him as a kindergarten teacher in a million years. (laughs) They then ask him to go undercover with one of their top officers, a short, fat, loud Italian cop named Danny. He's on board for the idea until they tell him that he and Danny will have to pretend to be twin brothers. (laughs) Matrix once again says that the idea is ridiculous and nobody will fall for it. The cops pitch him one more undercover idea, but as soon as Matrix hears the word pregnant, he stops them before they even get started. Ultimately, he rebuffs all of their offers and decides he'll take his chances with the courts. Excellent. Oh. And that's my immediate aftermath. Yeah, I like it. I wish, especially with Junior, I wish they hadn't bothered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very good. I like it. Thanks. All right. Well, let's see how this all ends up. Bring us home with your long term. Okay. Matrix is just killing the final hijacker on the plane using an in-flight magazine. <laughs> the passengers, Cindy, and the rest of the crew have all been knocked out by a nerve gas which was released into the air conditioning. Matrix had become immune to that gas during his time in Special Forces. With the pilot and co-pilot out, Matrix has to land the plane. That's made all the more difficult with one of the engines being damaged as Matrix had to throw a hijacker into it. The radio <laughs> as, was also, as one does. Yeah, the radio was also out as Matrix smashed another hijacker's head through it. <laughs> Just as the runway comes into view, two enemy fighter jets fly in. Looking around the cockpit, all Matrix has is two cans of soda, a clipboard, a grapefruit, and one of those cool quad rocket launchers left by one of the terrorists. (laughs) Matrix smiles. And that's my ending. I love it. That's Mm. fantastic. But you've got to get the quad rocket launcher in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, that's a lot of fun. That's very, um, very keeping with the spirit of an Arnold Schwarzenegger action film, I think. Yeah, just got to keep throwing stuff at him. Yeah, 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 very nice. Okay, what about yours then? What's, uh, what's happening in the, uh, the house? At his court hearing, things don't go well for Matrix. Just as the judge is about to hand down a guilty verdict, a court bailiff named Sarah quietly enters the courtroom to relieve another officer. She takes his place, but when she sees Matrix, she starts to freak out, yelling that he's a robot from the future there to kill them all. She pulls her gun out and ends up taking the judge hostage. After a tense standoff, Matrix storms the judge's chambers and disarms Sarah, saving the judge's life. When things calm down and the trial resumes, the judge has a change of heart and clears Matrix of all charges. Matrix returns to the Bauer house and resumes his duties as the housekeeper. Frustrated with the poor cleaning solutions he has to work with, Matrix eventually creates his own line of cleaning sprays, including ones called the Mess Terminator, the Blemish Eraser, End of Stains, and the Spot Predator. I particularly like the End of Stains, I have to admit. (laughs) End of Stains is good. They go on to become a massive success, and Matrix becomes a multi-millionaire cleaning product mogul. With all this money at his disposal, Matrix's life becomes a roller coaster, which includes hosting a reality TV show and even running for governor. <laughs> Throughout it all, he remains close with Jenny, even through an unfortunate eight-year spell where she begins practicing witchcraft. <laughs> and that is the end of my super hyper referencing other things ending, which, you know. No, very good. Just very couldn't. Good. <laughs> I got stuck in that mode. I wish I'd had a Matrix being the template for the Terminators. I didn't even think of that. I should have thought of that one. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I toyed with it because it seemed too obvious to do something yeah. with the Terminator. But then once I started going into all the other, you know, all the other stuff, it was kind of yeah, like, yeah. well, I may as well throw that one in there too. Yeah, they could have, they could have done that though for real. Though. They could have had a throwback where the Terminator turns out, you know, John Matrix was the template for the uh, oh, yeah, T-100. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Just like in passing, just like a name you see on a screen or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would yeah. be interesting. No, anyway, no, I like yours. Uh, lots of lots of references to, I think, most of Arnie's films there. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was goofy. Good stuff, good stuff. Okay, so Phil, uh, what what trivia do you have for us about Commando? Okay, well, the shopping mall used in the film is the same one used in Terminator 2. Nick Nolte was the original choice for Matrix. He was going to be like a drunken kind of, he'd be on the, on the ropes a bit, but he ended up getting called in. Arnie and Ray shot a love scene, but it was so unconvincing that they dropped it. Huh. Jeff Loeb, who wrote the screenplay, he originally intended to have Gene Simmons of Kiss play Matrix. Wow. Uh, Bill Paxton pops up in the film as uh, one of the officers, and he also starred in The Terminator and True Lies with Arnie. Right. Uh, the production shut down an entire terminal of L.A. International Airport, and the body counts 109 with 102 killed by Arnie. And there's also <laughs> this, I'm not sure this is how true this is, but a sequel was written for, for Commando, uh-huh. and uh, Frank Darabont went over, and John McTiernan was going to direct Wow. And the script was based on the book Nothing Lasts Forever. Schwarzenegger didn't want to go back to play Matrix, and so the script was reworked with a new central character 
eventually played by Bruce Willis, and that film became Die Hard. Huh. Mm. Interesting. Because apparently the sequels to Commando would have had Matrix being hired by a corporation to oversee the security of a of a big building and the executives there and make sure it was all secure. So he sets it up, hires the most dangerous people to be guards. Uh, but then it turns out the people who he's working for are actually working for doing illegal arms trading. And he then has to go back into the building and get past all these people he's hired who are the best of the best. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I have, some, I have a few cool. trivia bits uh, actually to add to that. Oh, go on up. Believe it or not. Just just kind of based on my sort of movie geek knowledge, nothing I've researched. But yeah. uh, you mentioned that Jeff Loeb was the screenwriter. And yeah. he, of course, went on to become a comic book writing superstar. He certainly did. Uh, he wrote um, several Marvel miniseries like uh, the, the Colors uh, series for Hulk, Captain America, Spider-Man, all those guys. Yeah. Uh, he wrote the Batman Hush storyline with Jim Lee, which was a mega seller. And now he uh, spearheads Marvel's television development arm. So he's sort of a Marvel luminary, if you will. And then also the country of Valverde was used as the name of a country in a few other movies, most notably Die Hard 2 and Predator. Um, and so there is sort of this unofficial connection between sort of these you know, major action franchises uh, because this sort of fictional country has been utilized uh, in, in more than one. Wow, so we could have had Arnie's character in Predator going uh, up against John Matrix. Yes, and I actually thought about that before I did my ending, but I decided yeah. not to. So, <laughs> Oh, that's so. cool. Yeah, so that's all. Just a little extra I like trivia. it when they do little things like that. Yeah, I do too. It's yeah. always fun. Yeah, it doesn't have to be anything more than that, just the name, but no. Right, just for people that kind of the, the eagle-eyed viewers to sort of spot, you know, the movie yeah. geeks who know these things inside and out and kind of go, oh, I get it. That's, you know, that's kind of fun. Very good. So, yeah. All right, well, that is Commando. Why don't we move on then to uh, The Incredibles? Okay, yeah, the Incredibles. We all know the Incredibles. We don't really have to go into what happens. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty. You know, <laughs> uh, but it's the it's the one. It's the Pixar one where the superpowered people have to go into uh, like civilian relocation because of all the damage they've been causing. They've been getting sued and things like that. And we've got Bob and Helen Parr, who used to be known as Mister Incredible and Elastigirl, and their children, Violet Dash and Jack Jack. They're now living uh, as a suburban family and keeping, you know, hidden. Bob Parr is uh, is not happy in his job. It's like an insurance agency, and he's just very bored. But he ends up getting a mysterious woman, gets in touch, called Mirage, and he starts going on top-secret missions, and he starts enjoying life again. Helen gets a bit suspicious, thinks he might be having a bit of an affair, but she discovers what's going on, and she goes and gets a new super suit from Edna Mode, who I love that uh, the little woman. She's great in it. Yep. Uh, but it all turns out that Mr. Incredible is getting manipulated by uh, an old fan of his who's now become the supervillain Syndrome, who's uh, been building a super droid, an Omnidroid, and he's been using uh, Mr. Incredible to make this Omnidroid indestructible, basically. Every time it lands, every time Mr. Incredible fights it. And so uh, Mr. Incredible gets captured, and Helen and the kids have to come and save him. And it's a bit like a James Bond kind of uh, showdown. And they eventually get back home and then Syndrome unleashes the Omnidroid on the city and they all have to join forces with their friend Frozone, voiced by Samuel L. Jackson, and they take down Syndrome and the Omnidroid. But then, three months later, the Pars, having adjusted to civilian life, interrupted by the Underminer, who uh, has come from underground, and so the family put on the super suits and battle commences very nicely done thank you so that's the the incredibles yes and it's a it's it's one of my favorite pixar films i just uh being a big comic book fan anyway it's probably the best fantastic four film we've seen <laughs> right. to, be, to be fair uh you know what it's funny is um you know everyone knows that i i love disney movies um and i'm, I'm not actually a humongous pixar fan which you know really people just don't seem to understand why I'm not a huge Pixar fan. And I always felt like I should have liked The Incredibles more than yeah. I do. Um, it's it's just not one of my favorite films. It's not one of my favorite Pixar films. And it's just not one of my favorite movies. I, you know, I, I, I like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, for being Pixar, who are supposedly so great, although I, I question that um, personally, and, uh, <laughs> you know, for being sort of the superheroes thing, which obviously I'm a big comic book geek and I love superheroes. Um, so there's something about the movie that's missing for me. I've just I've just never been a huge fan. I, again, I like it. I don't dislike it. It's just yeah, I, I never it had just that doesn't, love just for doesn't it. doesn't give you that final spark. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which may or may not uh, come through when you hear my ending. Oh, no. Is the bus driver going to be back again? <laughs> no, no bus driver. But I think maybe this week the role of Phil is being played by Mike. <laughs> um, oh, we'll okay. see how it goes. Oh, we'll how okay. Goes. Yeah. We'll look forward to this one. Yeah. So, okay, then. You've got me intrigued. Let's hear what happens in your day after. 
Okay. Well, the Incredibles become the premier superhero team, constantly battling criminals, aliens, monsters, and giant robots. They become adored by the public, and several other superheroes and superhero teams begin to emerge. Things are going peachy, and the Parr family is happier than it's ever been. And then, tragedy. A mysterious meteorite crashes onto Earth in the remote woods of Oregon. When Mr. Incredible goes to investigate, he discovers that the meteorite was some sort of transport. It's cracked open, and a blob-like alien is nearby. Mr. Incredible approaches it, but suddenly the alien uses its powerful psychic powers to take over Mr. Incredible's body. The creature is way too strong for him to resist, and his mind is trapped in a body that is no longer under his control. The alien, a deposed dictator from his home planet, feels this new body coursing with power and realizes he has found a new planet to subjugate under his control. Ooh, and that's oh, I like my, that. That's my day after. Oh, that's good. It sounds like it's going to go to dark places. Yeah, it, it, it might do. You never know. Mm, okay. All right. How about, your, how about your day after, then? Okay. Well, uh, I've got the, the powers battle the Underminer and his army of monsters from deep below the earth. It's a tough battle, and it looks like they will be defeated when the behemoth is unleashed. This is the biggest monster of all. Luckily, Jack-Jack, who's the baby, who's the, the youngest child of the Pars, he manifests a new power and grows to huge size and confronts the beast. Helen panics at seeing her baby fighting and ends up getting injured when surprised by the Underminer. Seeing his mother hurt, Jack-Jack punches the behemoth, knocking it out, and the battle is won, but the family rush around to Helen as she is unconscious. And that's my day after. Oh, so maybe I'm not the only one going a little dark today. Mm, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Mm. So go on, what's happening then with the, with the possessed Mr. Incredible? Okay, well, months later, the Earth is in ruins. <gasps> Mr. Incredible's power, when used to its fullest potential, turns out to be unstoppable. He never realized he'd been holding back all these years, but it turns out his sheer physical strength is beyond anything on Earth. He also develops new powers, including the ability to fly. With the evil alien dictator at the controls, Mr. Incredible goes on a rampage and lays waste to the Earth. He begins by taking out the governments of the largest countries in the world, destroying entire cities like Washington, D.C., to set the world into chaos. Other superhero groups rise up against him, but none of them are a match for him, and he ends up killing many of them. The press cries out, where are the rest of the Incredibles? His family has been nowhere to be seen since his rampage began. Finally, the Incredible family emerges. Helen, Violet, Dash, and Jack-Jack have been holding back, unable to bring themselves to fight their beloved husband and father. But now that the world teeters on the brink of collapse, they can wait no longer. When Mr. Incredible shows up in Chicago and begins wreaking havoc, they jump into action and attack. And that's where we'll leave it. Wow, it's pretty cool. Uh, but I can't, I can't see Pixar actually making this, though. <laughs> yeah, this Pixar. is definitely one of those. You know, sometimes our endings are like, I could really see this being a sequel. And then other times you're like, this yeah. is clearly all in my head. Yeah, this, but I, I, this is one of those all in my head ones. But it's, I'd really like to see it, though. Well, thank you. Yes. Imagine Pixar going really dark, though, and doing Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, just wow. just wait. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> uh, anyway, so um, no spoilers here. What? Okay. Uh, how about your uh, immediate aftermath? Okay, it's uh, two weeks later and Helen is still in a coma. Oh, no. I know, who'd have thought it? Bob hasn't left her side in all that time. Lucius, who's the, uh, that's the civilian identity of Frozone, and his wife have been keeping an eye on the kids, and Frozone has been fighting crime, which uh, he's also noticed there seems to be an increase in super criminals reappearing. Hmm. Violet and Dash are worried, sick about their mother, but know they have to be strong for the family. So they work hard at school and keep on training their powers. While having lunch in school one day, Lucius comes to get them. Helen has been showing movement. The kids are overjoyed. They get to the hospital just as Helen opens her eyes. She looks around at her family. They're all smiles. Who are you, she asks. And that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, no. Mm. You bring her back just to snatch her memories away. Yes. Well, this it's not, it's not me. It's just what happens. Right. Well, <laughs> luckily there's one segment left, so hopefully things will get righted. Ooh, let's see. Let's Go on. See. Let's, what's happening then in your, your dark timeline? All right. Well, it takes just minutes for Mr. Incredible to defeat his family. Despite the combination of their powers, they're no match for the alien-infused supervillain. He traps the three children in a prison he forms out of the wreckage of the Sears Tower, then turns his attention to Helen. He tells her that she can choose to become his queen or to watch him kill her children before he kills her. She reluctantly chooses to submit, and Mr. Incredible rejoices in his victory. The end. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> over the next few months, the Incredible family rules over the world with an iron fist. But Helen notices something. Every so often, she finds a piece of paper in the tower that they call home. The papers each have what look like scribbles on them. She doesn't know what to make of them, but she saves them all. One day, she's looking at the pile of them when a realization hits her. 
She puts the drawings together like a jigsaw puzzle and realizes that it's a map. She sneaks out one night to the location on the map, and there she discovers the alien's crashed transport. She finds its hibernating body in a nearby cave and puts it all together. Without hesitation, she kills it. And just like that, Mr. Incredible is himself again. When Helen returns, he explains that he could see what was happening but couldn't control himself. So he used the little bits of control he had to draw the pieces of the map whenever he could. Helen tells him that Earth will forgive him, but he knows it isn't true. He also tells her that he can't take the chance that something like this will ever happen again. He hugs Helen and his children and tells them that he loves them. Then he flies off and disappears into the sky. As he leaves Earth's atmosphere, he turns and looks back at his planet one last time. He wipes a tear from his eye and then turns and flies directly into the sun. <sighs> and that's the end. Well, it's, uh, that's cracking, that. <laughs> yeah. It's very cheerful, isn't it? It's, yeah. Sad but it's heroic that. because he sacrifices yeah, right. himself yeah. so that, that, you know, this can never happen to the earth again because yeah. he knows he's too dangerous. Wow. Well, it's, it was dark, but it was good. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. You know what? It had been a while since I had gone dark. And, and I was kind of thinking, like, I do a lot of happy endings. I do a lot of meta, a lot of movie references like I did with Commando. And, you know, I don't know if it's because I don't love The Incredibles or, or not. But I kept when I kept when I was thinking of endings, I just sort of kept going like, I kind of want to go like I just kind of felt like I wanted to go dark with this one, and so once I made that decision, I figured I may as well commit. You know, go big yeah, or go no, home. I'm so. glad you did. It was very good. Oh, thanks, thanks. I appreciate it. Well, let's hear. I got to know what's happening with Helen and whether or not she eventually remembers her family. So, give us your your uh, long term there, Phil. Okay. Helen has no memory of her life, and she goes into a terrible panic when she reaches for a glass of water and her arm stretches out for the first time. Bob doesn't give up on her, and he shows Helen photos of their life together. And although the memories don't come back. She feels safe with them all. A few months later, the family are back home. Helen's had a few flashes of memory, and she still has trouble using her powers, but they're a loving family and things are good. However, criminal activity is still on the rise, and a team of supervillains, the Legion of Destructo Death Doom Delinquents, have formed. (laughs) They take down and capture Bob, Frozone, Violet, Dash, and a few other superheroes who've come out of hiding. Helen had been watching the fight on the news. She still hasn't got all of her memories back, but she loves her family, all these people who she's come to, to know as her family. And she's the only one who can save them. Elastigirl suits up and prepares for battle. And that's how we leave it. Oh, I like it. Mm. Now that I can see Pixar making. Yeah. That's like, a, that's like a part two of a trilogy almost. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it ends with her kind of becoming Elastigirl again. And then the third chapter is kind of, you know, her coming to the rescue and, and putting it all back together again. That's what I was thinking because I really thought, you know, the whole losing the memory thing. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it's the kind of thing you could do in like something like a, an animated film and it doesn't, it, it would work better, especially if she's got these elastic superpowers. She'd be, you'd absolutely be terrified to begin with. It's just, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when we do our after the endings of our after the endings, we can come back to this one and you can do it. Give us the third chapter. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the next one. Yeah. <laughs> I think when we, when we run out of movies, we can come back and just go through all of our movies again. And carry on. And then we'll just endings, do what yeah. happens after our own endings. Yeah. We really after confuse the end, people. After the ending, the trilogy. Right. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Brilliant. After the after the ending. <laughs> and then we can do like all the TV shows where they have the after shows where they talk about the episodes. So we'll do yeah. the after the after the ending and then we'll do a separate episode where we talk about our yeah. after the endings. I really liked the bit where you did this, Mike. It was right. really good. Exactly. Yeah. You know what my favorite part was, Phil? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I didn't expect them to die. Right. Even though I wrote it, I was completely yeah. surprised by it. Yeah, it came out of left field. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, how about some incredible trivia, Phil? You got any of that for us today? I've got some, well, maybe mediocre. Okay. (laughs) Mildly interesting trivia. Mildly interesting. Yeah. yeah, Uh, Jason Lee, who played Syndrome, he recorded his vocals in four days. Uh, Craig T. Nelson, who did Mr. Incredible, recorded his over a span of two years. (laughs) Interesting. Holly Hunter, who was uh, Elastigirl, she insisted on learning the proper radio protocol for the scene when uh, Elastigirl's flying the jet heading to the island. So everything you hear in that is actual military protocol when they use, you know, the chatting to each other. Cool. Uh, so far, it is the only Pixar film without a distinct appearance by the Pizza Planet Chuck. Right. The film features 35 explosions, 189 buttons are pressed, and there are approximately 640 gunshots. Wow, it sounds like an Arnold Schwarzenegger film. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and it also features the, the Wilhelm scream. Oh, yay. Yeah, as the family takes out some of Syndrome's henchmen on the island. Very cool. And that's... The Incredibles. And The Incredibles 2 is in development, so that will be with us 
over the next two or three years. I can't remember. The right, answer. and I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to make a crazy prediction, Phil, and I'm going to say that the Incredibles two storyline is not going to mirror my after the ending. Uh, yeah, I think you're probably right. <laughs> yes. Maybe some similarities to yours, though. We'll see. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see because uh, yeah, we've done a couple of films, well, two or three films now, I think, where there's sequels and developments so it's gonna yeah right. we'll have to revisit them when they do come out yes indeed we will have to compare notes when they mm. when they finally hit so. and if there are any similarities we're going to see how the bugging goes that's right and then we're going to sue the crap out of them yeah <laughs> we're going to say we had this ending first yeah it's ours that's right pay up hollywood <laughs> <laughs> oh and one other thing uh, john ratzenberger is in the film. He does the voice of the Underminer, and I think he's been in every Pixar film. I believe he's been in every single one, actually. I believe that they consider him their good luck totem. Yeah. I'm not yeah, saying that he... to be sarcastic. I believe that's actually sort of their... Like, yeah, because he's, he's hamming the Toy Story films and crops up and other things. But yeah, yep. that, that sees the Underminer, so he's only in it for a tiny little bit, but that's, that's his bit for that. Yeah, usually, except for the Toy Story films, he's just a cameo, but he's in, mm. he's in all of them. So mm. I think it works out, though. He's been, if you take all the, the money earned from all the films he's been in, technically classed as one of the most successful actors. That's true. He's probably one of the highest box office grossing actors of all time. Yeah, because he's, he's a rebel pilot in one of the Star Wars films as well. He's in Empire Strikes Back. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's yeah. actually one of the, um, he's one of the, uh, the, the, the troops on, on Hoth. He's one of the ground troops on Hoth. One of oh, the yeah. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. He's probably the highest grossing actor of all time. Mm. If you well look at that. Uh, yeah, well worth looking him up because he's, uh, he's Cliff from Cheers, and, yep. but he's done so many things. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. All right, very cool. Well, there you go. So those are our endings for The Incredibles and Commando. Uh, we hope you enjoyed them. But for now, why don't we move on then to our Mighty Morphing mini feature. Bum, 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 bum. That was a very uh, Schwarzenegger-like uh, transition there. Uh, I was going to try and do a voice and couldn't do it. Totally <laughs> messed that up. Nice. <laughs> Get, <laughs> to oh. yeah. Get to the segue. Get to the segue. I can't do it. No, nope. no. Apparently, we are both terrible at doing. Arnie, yeah. So there's no Arnie, no Arnie tonight. Nope, Arnie tonight. All right. Well, uh, as we mentioned earlier, we are talking here with the cast of Outsiders. So Outsiders is a hit television show here in the U.S. that airs on WGN, and the second season is just starting. So this first group had some some real great talents in it. First of which was uh, David Morse, the great character actor. Look him up. Trust me. The minute you see his face, you will know him. But uh, you'll remember him from movies like the The Green Mile, World War Z, Disturbia, uh, Sixteen Blocks. You know, I mean, you name it. He's he's been in so many oh, movies. The Twelve Monkeys. So many, yeah. Yeah, so many uh, TV rock. shows. and Yeah, I mean, he's just been in everything. Uh, he's fantastic. I also spoke with uh, Ryan Hurst, who you probably know best from either Sons of Anarchy or uh, he played uh, Gary Bertier in Remember the Titans, one of my favorite sports movies of all time. Uh, and they were joined by Jillian Alexi, uh, who is a young actress who this is kind of her first big uh, starring role. So the three of them, um, we got to chat with them a little bit about being on this show, Outsiders, where they play sort of off-the-grid mountain people who uh, deal with a lot of trouble. And um, this is what they had to say about acting in this kind of intense show. What kind of exciting stuff can we look forward to from your characters in season two? The musical. All right. <laughs> set in Nazi Germany. Perfect. I'm looking forward to it already. Um, what can we give away? You know, darker, weirder, sexier. You know, that's pretty much the... And that we're not alone on the mountain. You know, it's, is everything, you know, that season one sort of set up as being, you know, we're introducing you to this world, and now we get to really kind of go into the, 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 the nitty-gritty of, of what our stories are all about. One of the things that's fun about it is we sort of explode it at the end of season one, mm-hmm. and we start where all of us are kind of um, separated by that explosion. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously people thought I was dead. I'm here to tell you that. <laughs> it was happy. kind of a hint when we saw you. Yeah. We were like, oh. Yeah. But, it, but in a way... It, <laughs> Don't give that away. <laughs> Spoiler. Way it's, you know, all of us out of that kind of finding our way back to um, the mountaintop. Right. Yeah. There are some shows that seem like they're really easy to be on, and there are some shows that seem like they're really hard work to be on. Mm-hmm. How's this falling for you guys compared with... How does it seem to you? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like you guys work pretty hard. Uh, yeah. that, that's, that's, how's the atmosphere on set? Do you guys get to have fun? Oh, yeah. We, yeah, we yeah. have an excellent cast. We have yeah. Yeah, great group of people. I mean, yeah, they're, they're the elements. And look, this industry ain't glamorous. I don't know who thinks that it is. Yeah. It's really not. We do 15, 16-hour days, and if it's raining and it's muddy, we still shoot. And, yeah. 
our crew are incredible. They're carrying gear up and down mountains. We like I stood on the side of a mountain for 15 hours the other day. My calf muscles spasmed <laughs> the next day. But it's like you, I don't know. It's it's just the job, and yeah. I mean, if we love it, so we keep doing it. But yeah. it it definitely has its its physical challenges and its mental challenges. Yeah, but, but if our alternative was to be on a stage all day in offices, and I think we'd much, be much rather be out there doing what we're doing. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then and then and then the play that we get to do with you know the scenes and, and you know we, it's make believe we get we get to put on costumes every day and <laughs> pretend yeah. to be other people. Yeah. And, but also know. so much more fun than I mean obviously we dress up for a living. <laughs> it's like <laughs> is is to you know to play a cop and or you know walking around the city and is nothing compared to this. Right. Yeah. Is, you know is or a, the, studio, or a studio show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's great. It's yeah. Great. Awesome. And Pittsburgh is incredible. It really doubles amazingly for not only the, the mountains but the town as well. There's some incredible locations. So that's been it's been a real blessing. Yeah. yeah. And next up, we have Kyle Gallner and Christina Jackson. I am a big fan of Kyle Gallner's. He was a regular on Veronica Mars and also starred in movies like Jennifer's Body. And uh, he's just really terrific in everything he's in. I, I really like him a lot. And he is joined by Christina Jackson, uh, who, again, this is kind of one of her first big starring roles, although she was on Boardwalk Empire uh, for several episodes. Uh, and they talk about their characters and their relationship and uh, acting on the show. All right, we'll start off with an easy question. Tell us all the secrets about season two you're not supposed to tell us. Well, I'm dead. I'll tell you everything. Tell you anything you want to know. I'm dead. Hassle avenges me. What else? Everybody's dead. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, everybody's dead. So. That was really positive. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, no, you see a lot more of uh, Hassle and Sally in season two. You kind of, you get to really dive much more into who these characters are and their um, and their relationship and their and their place in the world and, and what they're what what they're doing and how they're trying to kind of survive what they have going on. I think every everybody likes to see people fall in love. And I think in the first season that's very much Hassel and Sally and have never met two people meet like them. Uh, we get a lot of the Romeo and Juliet comparisons. Hopefully none of None of us die, but um, <laughs> it's that intensity. It's uh, it's that intensity, and it's that you know, just watching these two people from completely different, you know, whatevers, just like each other. Um, they've never seen anything like each other, so it's it's one of those things where it's like, huh, how does how do they make this work, work. and how do they make it happen? Um, yeah. Season two. Mm. <laughs> mm. It all come across quite nice, sir. Uh... Yeah, I'm going to have to check this show out. I don't think it's been on in the UK so far. Well, according to the internet, so this could be fake news, people. Uh, it doesn't look like it's got uh, a UK broadcast at the moment, but it's on its second season in the US. I'm sure it will uh, pop up on Amazon or Netflix at some point, if it isn't already. Right, and the first season is also available on home video. So check that out if you get a chance. Good stuff. All right, moving on then. Let's get to our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes where we revisit the last century of movies year by year. And this year we are discussing the top 10 films of 1973. Hmm. Let me think, Phil. Hmm. It seems like there's one particular thing that was pretty important that happened in 1973, but it, it escapes me now. I wonder well, what that could it's, be. Well, it's one of the best years ever because <laughs> we, we saw so many wonderful amazing things happened in 1973 but one of the i think the most important thing which uh, a lot of people may have forgotten but i think it changed the world as we know it and eventually it's going to bring us like a bill and ted future where you know there's peace and everybody's being excellent to each other but it's uh, 1973 is the year i was born uh that's what it was see you're right that is definitely it i knew i knew something like momentous like beyond the usual happened that year so Something which caused the entire universe to stop and go, ah. <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, I, I, for one, am, am very glad that you were born that year so and that, and that you're here with us now. So Thank you. It was also a very good year for films, actually. Uh, yes, it was, actually. I have to yeah. admit, I was quite pleased with the uh, choices this year. As you know, I'm not the biggest fan of 70s films in the world, but I actually had a, I have a, a top 10 I'm pretty happy with. So Yeah, and there's some... Some very big movies as well, important movies, but not all of them made my list, but I quite like my list. I was gutted some of the ones I had to leave out, but that's the way it goes. Why don't you climb into your famous time machine and take us back to the year when you were just a wee little baby and tell us what was going on in the world while you were in diapers. Okay, yes, uh, 1973, the Prime Minister was Edward Heath in the UK, and over in the US, the President was uh, Richard Nixon, who uh, 
got us to some shenanigans. Yeah, that worked out well. Yeah, uh, but you know, America's learned from that. Uh, <laughs> but okay, some no comment. Some of the things that happened in that year: Aerosmith and the New York Dolls released their debut albums. Elvis's concert in Hawaii was the first worldwide telecast by an entertainer, oh, and cool. it was watched by more people. More people watched the Elvis concert than watched the Apollo moon landing. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I know. It's, it's very crazy. Uh, George Foreman beat Joe Frazier to win their boxing heavyweight title. Uh, the U.S. involvement in Vietnam War officially ended with the signing of the Paris Peace Accords. Hmm. The construction on the CN Tower in Toronto began. Oh, Pink Floyd released The Dark Side of the Moon. Queen Elizabeth opened the modern-day London Bridge. The first handheld mobile phone call was made. Wow. Uh, the World Trade Center officially opened. The Sears Tower in Chicago was finished. That would be the Sears Tower that I destroyed in my After the End of the Yeah, Incredibles. I did think that when you said that, yeah. The soap opera The Young and the Restless debuted on CBS. And Billie Jean King defeated Bobby Riggs in the Battle of the Sexes tennis match. And that's getting made into a film starring Emma Stone and Steve Carell. And finally, Shambu Tamang was the youngest person to climb Everest, and he was either 16 or 18. His official date of birth is unknown. Huh. Some famous people were born then. We had me. Yeah, yeah, very famous. Yeah. Uh, Portia de Rossi, Tara Strong, Jack Davenport, Jim Parsons, Pharrell Williams, me, David Blaine, Adrian Brody, Heidi Klum, Neil Patrick Harris, Juliette Lewis, Kate Beckinsale, Andrew Lincoln, Omar Epps, Kristen Wiig, and me. <laughs> and we're... <laughs> we lost. We lost some legends. We lost. That you're in good company, though, Phil. You're you're in very. I know. Good it's, uh, Clearly, that was a, a a year for very talented people to be born. Yeah. I mean, they all pale in comparison to you, but but still, well, yeah, obviously, yeah. I should I should say that they're in good company. I guess. <laughs> thank, you, thank you. But one thing I will like to say is everybody on that list is like extremely good looking and very talented. Every single one. Of them. Every every single one. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> yeah, but, but sadly. As is the case, we had the birth, but we also had the deaths. We lost Lyndon B. Johnson, Edward G. Robinson, Noel Coward, Pablo Picasso, Betty Grable, Veronica Lake, Bruce Lee, Jean-Pierre Melville, John Ford, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Bobby Darren. Well, I like to think that what happened was, you know, with you bringing so much awesomeness into the world, there just wasn't <laughs> room for all the awesomeness that existed. So a few people gracefully decided to bow out to make room, you know what oh, I'm saying, yeah. so that you it wouldn't throw the universe off balance. I'm sure there's lots of people out there who won't be thanking me for that, then, if that is the case. <laughs> <laughs> all right, great. Well, why don't we get into our films then? Okay, then. So what's your number 10? All right, well, my number 10 may not uh, be like, the most groundbreaking film or, you know, one of those, you know, a, a true uh, cinematic, you know, Oscar-winning masterpiece. But it's a very beloved film, I think, and I don't think too many people would begrudge it being uh, on my list. It's not a Disney movie, but it is Charlotte's Web. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, the animated film, um, which I think is a piece of a lot of people's childhood, including my own. Um, I always really loved the film. You know, Debbie Reynolds, who just passed away, was the voice of Charlotte, and I always thought that she had the coolest voice in the world. It was probably my first exposure to Debbie Reynolds, even without realizing it. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just a classic story. The animation is terrific. Even, you know, it, it holds up, I think, even today. And it's just a, a great little film that's good for, for kids and adults alike. Excellent. No, lovely choice. It's a lovely film, lovely story. So that's a, that's a nice start. Well, mine is along similar lines. Uh, it's The Exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> If I'm not mistaken, wasn't it um, actually developed as a sequel to Charlotte's Web originally? I mean, because they're That's they're very right, closely yeah. related. Yeah, it was going to be the pig was going to get possessed, right? And uh, <laughs> then the spider becomes this this demon, right? But but he thought it wasn't going to track well with kids. Well, I can understand that. <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm just gonna go ahead and say, you know, Phil, I don't we don't usually judge each other's choices too much. I'm surprised that The Exorcist is only number ten on your list. That's yeah, that's well, impressive. I know it's because uh, I really like it, but it's. I never, I never quite like it as much as most people do it, but they go, it's, it's the best horror film of all time. Right, right, right. Okay, that's Cause, fair. Because I remember seeing it. It took me a while to see it, but when I eventually did see it, I was watching it and I was going, well, well, that was good, but oh, okay, okay, yeah. I got you. Yeah, I didn't, it didn't scare me as much as I was hoping, probably. You know, you know I've I had really, that reaction to many films, so I, I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. No, I still really enjoy it, though. It's uh, directed by William Friedkin. Obviously, most people know it. It's uh, it's supremely well shot. It's got, it has got some very. It's got some amazing scenes of horror, and everybody in it acts brilliantly. It's not quite as scary as I was hoping, because I've already said, and that's why it's not further up my list. But it's a, a supremely well made film. Indeed, it is. 
Okay, great choice. Well, I'm curious to see what comes in ahead of that, but uh, we'll see. Mm. All right, well, my number nine is Enter the Dragon, the Bruce Lee martial arts classic, which we did an After the Ending for just uh, not that long ago, actually. Yes, that was uh, episode 27. Right. So uh, that was a lot of fun to do. Um, but, uh, you know, it's 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 classic Bruce Lee. I've always enjoyed Bruce Lee films. Um, they're not my favorite, favorite movies in the world, but I do like them. And Enter the Dragon, of course, has some really iconic sequences, you know, the yellow jumpsuit and the mirrors and everything. And, uh, you know, it's just it, it is kind of him at the height of his star power, if you will. So, yeah. Yeah. That's my number nine. Okay, good stuff. My number nine is Sam Peckinpah's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which is a Western stars, James Coburn, Chris Christopherson, and Bob Dylan, who also does lots of the music in it. And it's basically uh, an aging Pat Garrett who's been hired to bring down his old friend Billy the Kid. Um, it's a great movie, well, obviously, because it's on the list, but Sam Peckinpah, so it's, it's quite violent. But you've got James Coburn as Pat Garrett and Chris Christopherson as Billy the Kid, who I, I love both of them. And seeing them together is, you know, the playing these two characters who used to be good friends and now they're opposing sides of the law. It's just a classic Western, probably not as popular as lots of other Westerns, but it's, uh, it's well worth tracking down if you haven't seen it. And as I say, if you're a fan of Bob Dylan as well, it's got, uh, it's got a great soundtrack by him. Well, I'm not a Bob Dylan fan, but I do actually want to see that movie. I will say I have not seen it, so it's not on my list. Um, but it's one I'm familiar with and certainly one that I do want to track down one of these oh, days. Oh, definitely, definitely. Really, it's Sam Peckinpah and it's just, it's, it's a classic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, good choice. Well, my number eight is Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And uh, that is the fifth film in the original Planet of the Apes uh, franchise, uh, which I'm a huge fan of. I mean, uh, the original Planet of the Apes is one of my all-time favorite movies, um, and uh, I love the entire series. But I, I do find – I know some people consider it a sort of series of diminishing returns. But for me, um, I always found that it was the odd-numbered Planet of the Apes movies that I liked and the even-numbered ones that I didn't. So uh, the first, third, and fifth films, you know, Planet and Escape from the Planet of the Apes and Battle for the Planet of the Apes are the most coherent ones that, that I like the most. And then Beneath the Planet of the Apes and Conquest of the Planet of the Apes are the two, the second and fourth ones that I like less. Um, so this one sort of is kind of like the, re not the reboot, but like a reset of the series because the third film saw some of the apes go back in time and sort of oh, restart yeah, yeah, the yeah. whole thing. And this one sort of, um, by the end of the film, we're not quite at the same place that we were at the beginning of the first one. But it does sort of show the breakdown of human society, how the apes sort of take over and kind of that climactic battle between the apes and the humans, um, which they obviously drew from uh, spiritually, at least for the new Planet of the Apes films that have yeah. been coming out. Um, so it's not the, the you know, it's not a, a truly great classic, but I have a very, very large soft spot for all of the original Apes movies. And so this one uh, made it onto my list. Good stuff. It didn't make my list mainly because I know I've seen it. But I haven't seen it in a long, long time and couldn't really remember much from it. So Sure. I mean, there are definitely better movies out there yeah, than, yeah. than this. But like I said, I, I, it's it's a lot of nostalgia for me and just sort of a love of the franchise as a whole that you know puts it up a little higher than some people might. No, no. Perfect pick. Uh, my number eight is – it's another sci-fi dystopian film. It's Soylent Green and starring Charlton Heston and Edward G. Robinson in his final film. Uh, sure, many of you know, but it's uh, in a world where overpopulation – and lack of food and resources means, and, oh, and the greenhouse effect and everything means it's uh, it's not looking good for everyone. But the government uh, survive, brings out these processed food rations, which will have different names uh, to feed the population. And one of them is Soylent Green. And as the film goes on, Charlton Heston investigates a crime, which ends up, which leads to him finding out what Soylent Green actually is. You've probably seen the reference to it in many TV shows and other films, including The Simpsons and things like that, where people go, Soylent Green is, and things. But it's a classic sci-fi. It's uh, not one of the best sci-fi films, but it's it's got some... Charlton Heston's always good in these kind of roles. It does give you the good feeling of this dystopian, overpopulated world. And uh, it's a good twist, although for many of us, when you do finally see the film, it's probably been spoiled, but it's still worth watching. Absolutely. I agree. So my number seven is American Graffiti. Uh, George Lucas's second film and his last film before he pretty much became Star Wars. Yeah. And it's basically kind of a, a, a 
prototypical teenage comedy. It's the last day of summer vacation. So you have all these teenagers who are cruising in their cars and hooking up and, you know, just getting into various amounts of trouble. Um, it's, it's a really fun film and it, it has just an amazing cast of people. Kind of the it's sort of that definition of the before they were famous. You know, oh, film. Yeah, most definitely. Um, it's got Harrison Ford. It's got Ron Howard, Richard Dreyfus, Charles Martin Smith. Cindy Williams, uh, Wolfman Jack, Suzanne Summers. I mean, you know, you name it. There's a, a lot of famous people in this movie. Yeah, it's, it's basically um, one of those films where you're watching it and you go, oh, that's that's so-and-so, that's him. Right, this. right, yeah. exactly. Uh, and, and honestly, I, I first became a fan of this film because it was George Lucas. And, you know, I, I first became a fan of this film because it was George Lucas. And, you know, as a, as a Star Wars-obsessed kid, I wanted to go back and watch all of his movies. But it was a really big hit. At the time it came out, it was one of the highest-grossing movies of all time, I believe. Um, it was really a, a very, very successful movie. Um, but it's a lot of fun. It's 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 kind of simple. It's nothing groundbreaking, but it's an enjoyable film. And it's just it's great to kind of go back and watch all these famous people when they were young and you know uh before they were as well known as they are today yeah that's a great pick thank you okay my number seven is live and let die the eighth james bond film and the first one with roger moore as james bond uh, and he ends up going to harlem and then the caribbean and goes up against uh, yaffa koto's mr big or dr kananga it was a uh, I think it was it was the first James Bond film I actually saw as well. Oh yeah, was it? So it's yeah, it's just the one and I always remembered it. Uh, and the Roger Moore films did get awfully cheesy, but I really like this one. It had a bit more of a rawness to it compared to, to the, the later Jim, uh, Roger Moore ones, but uh, still obviously had the gadgets and the silly moments. But I always liked it the fact it took you some of these different places. Like uh, it had the whole black exploitation kind of thing going on as well. Right. Uh, and it just it was just just struck me. You have this this. British spy going up to Harlem, then going to the Caribbean. It's like a mixed match of cultures, and it's James Bond, and it's uh, just a wonderful Bond movie, and it's still one of my favorites of uh, right. of the Bonds. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Good choice. All right, well, my number six is Papillon, starring Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. A very good film. Yes, indeed, it is. It's um, it's basically the story of these two men who are on a prison on a remote uh, jungle. I believe it's an island, and they are um, they basically over very several 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 years they become friends. And uh, Steve McQueen uh, never gives up trying to escape. And um, it's quite a quite an interesting film, but it's really really good. The performances are terrific, uh, and I always found it interesting because it's that it's sort of the, that bridging the gap between classic Hollywood and modern Hollywood. Because I always yeah. consider Dustin Hoffman like an actor of my generation, not like him and I are the same generation, but like I grew up watching him in movies, you know. Um, but Steve McQueen obviously was sort of that classic Hollywood still. So to me, it was always strange that they were in a movie together, even though I know that they yeah, obviously yeah. both were acting at the, the same time. Um, but it's a really good film. I've always had a thing for, for prison dramas. I just have always found that world fascinating. And um, it's, a, it's a really well shot, colorful film. It has some great intense sequences. And I, I really like the relationship between the two characters. So that's my number six. No, fantastic pick. It almost made my list, but... Other things uh, trumped it, but no, it's a very good film. My number six is a film called Charlie Varick, or it was also called The Last of the Independents. Ah, right. It's a crime film directed by Don Siegel and stars Walter Matthau, where he's a former stunt pilot, and he, him and his wife and some friends, they end up robbing a bank. The robbery goes off very well, but it's the mafia's money, and so the mafia send out some hitman, and the police are after them. They have to get away, and Charlie Varick, Walter Matthau's Charlie Varick is very cool, laid back, and he just... He manages to outthink everyone, and it's a brilliant film, some great scenes, uh, and it's just brilliant the way you see him. Uh, well, he has to think, improvise lots of things as well, but he, how he manages to get, it, get away with it. Many of you out there probably haven't seen it, but it's well worth tracking down if you can. Well, I am one of those people who has not seen it, actually, so I am familiar with it, but I have never gotten around to watching it. So, But I do like Walter Matthau very much, so I, I definitely want to check that out. It's quite different to his uh, usual characters. You know, usually expecting to be like the comedy bumbling fool kind of stuff. But, right. Uh, it's a, it's a good one. Excellent. Okay, what about you on number five? Yes, my number five is has already appeared on your list, and it is Live and Let Die. How oh, excellent. Sir. I had a feeling it would. Yeah. As we've discussed on previous episodes, I am a huge James Bond fan, um, always have been, always will be. Um, you know, you kind of covered this one well. It's not the best James Bond film. It's certainly not the worst. It is a good one. I've always liked Roger Moore. He was the, the Bond that I grew up with. Um, and so while I don't know that I would qualify him as my favorite Bond, he certainly – I like his movies, I think, more than some other Bond fans do. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, Live and Let Die, it's great. It's, it's classic James Bond, and uh, I will always enjoy it. Fantastic. Uh, I think there's going to be a few films 
uh, from now on, which have been on each other's list. But let's just... Uh, yeah, probably, yeah. My number five is High Plains Drifter. It's the Western directed by and starring Clint Eastwood. And this is the one where, a bit of a supernatural one. He had a few of them where there's like this, this face, supernatural kind of thing going on. But he's a stranger who rides into town. You're not sure who he is, but he has dreams of somebody getting whipped. And you realise the people in the town have done something bad to someone. They're expecting some bad guys to come in. And they uh, let, let Clint Eastwood do whatever he wants to make sure they can defend them. It's a very dark film, but it's a, a very good one. Well, I have to admit, I have not actually seen that one. Um, it is, again, a film, a film that I'm, I'm familiar with. But, uh, you know, my, my Clint Eastwood filmography, I'm still filling in some gaps. And that is one of the ones I have not yet tracked down. So, Oh, well worth checking out, but uh, it is dark. Okay, fair enough. Mm. All right, well, my number four also appeared on your list, and it is The Exorcist. And uh, I do I do love it. I think it's a great horror film. I don't know that I think it's the best horror film of all time, although I can see why people say that. It certainly is, yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I can as well. You know, one of the best horror films of all time, just because it's, it's I mean, so much horror is, is schlock anyway. But, you know, it's one of those rare movies that's horror, but also mainstream. It's not just like a slasher, you know, or, or you know, creature, that kind of thing. Um, but I, I do love it. I think it's, it's you know, I love horror movies that are about creepiness and atmosphere rather than blood and guts, you know. And, and this one has some, obviously, a few gross out moments. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a classic for a reason. I, I do enjoy it very much. Excellent. Okay, my number four is uh, also been on your list. It's Enter the Dragon. Ah, very good. Yeah, as you say, Bruce Lee. It's uh, it's it's my favorite Bruce Lee film. It's probably probably most people's favorite Bruce Lee film, to sure. be honest. Yeah. But yeah. it's uh, I think it just works the best out of them all. It's uh, got a nice tight plot. It's got some amazing fights and some good characters. Right. Uh, yeah. What more do you need? Yeah. It's got exactly. The, the, the great <laughs> and the amazing scene with the mirrors at the end. It's got some. Very well put together shots as well. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, my number three, once again, has appeared on your list. I, I do have a sneaking suspicion we're heading to the same conclusion here at number one. But um, number three uh, has been on your list, and it is Soylent Green. Excellent. I totally understand why it came in where it did on your list, but this is a movie that I really love. Like it's, you know, I had known the the sort of classic quote from this movie for years before I actually watched it, and so I mean, I, I knew. Too, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I've everybody read about does. It in magazines and stuff. Yeah, like that. I mean, it's all over the place, you know. But but I, so it, the 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 twist kind of at the end wasn't a surprise to me. What was surprising to me was when I finally watched the movie, how much I still enjoyed it, even though I knew the end. Because some movies that predicate on a twist, that's the whole enjoyment of it. Yeah, and yeah. this movie. To me, I just thought was great. I loved the kind of vision, this dystopic vision of the future. I loved the sort of mystery. I loved Edward G. Robinson's performance. I'm a huge fan of his anyway. Um, and then the ending still has a punch, even if you know it already. And um, I just think it's really this just classic science fiction. I know it's got that sort of 70s aesthetic to it, but um, I feel like it actually fits the film really well. Yeah, yeah. I do. I, I just, I really enjoy Silent Green. I, I have so much fun watching that movie. So that's my number three. There's a lot more to it than uh, lots of people would think. Right. The only many people are just aware of the twist, as you say. Yes, yeah, there's exactly. A lot, lot more going on in the film than than that. Yeah, you know, it deals with all kinds of things. Uh, you know, you know, assisted suicide and and you know, sort of class warfare and you know, all these things going on. And then at the, on top of all that, it's just sort of this great science fiction film. So, so my my number three has also been on your list, and it's American Graffiti. Very good. Pretty much what you said, but also because living in the UK, it just gave us when I finally saw it, it was. You're seeing this part of America, which is heavily romanticized, but you just have this thing and it wasn't a, alive and, you know, when it was set in the 60s, but it just looked like this, this amazing place. Everybody driving around in the cars down, you know, the main drag and doing all this stuff. It's just things that didn't happen over here. And you say it's a great cast. It's a coming of age kind of story. People having to, kids having to become grown ups and realizing that the future is this unknown country. Funny things happen in these various characters, and it's just put together very well. You forget that George Lucas is a very good film director. Right, right. And as you say, the amazing cast who've gone on to uh, amazing things. Yeah, yeah. Here we're getting to our top two. I'll be curious to see if they're the same mm. or not, but I think we are working at least to the number one uh, yeah, you know, some unity there. Yeah, I think so, yeah. This was a really tough choice for me, though, between my number two and my number one. But my number two mm. is Westworld. And I know that it's popular right now because of the TV show, but I have been a fan of this movie since I was a kid. I watched it first. I mean, I, I'm, I remember checking out the VHS tape 
from the library. Yeah. And now kids' VHS tapes are big blocky things that used to play movies on. And libraries <laughs> are big buildings where you can go and get books for free. Say what? Yeah. And also videotapes. But anyway, uh, I watched it when I was a kid. I was blown away by it. I've watched it over the years a number of times. It's one of my favorite, favorite films. Um, you know, Yul Brynner as this cowboy robot. I mean, basically, it's this, this kind of pleasure, you know, uh, resort where there's these robots in like the Roman times and, and the, the Old West. And then, of course, the robots start to malfunction and start killing the human guests. And man, it's got it's just it's just great. Like it's got some some real brutal scenes where, you know, these people do get killed. And there's this killer robot who's stalking these these characters and he's just unstoppable. It's kind of a proto Terminator, if you will, based on a Michael Crichton story or Michael Crichton. Did, was it based on a story or did he direct? Yeah, he wrote, he wrote and directed wrote, it. Yeah, uh, it's, because it because I will say it's my number two as well. I had a feeling. <laughs> yeah. So I'll let you go on a little bit about it then. But, but yeah, it's you, you're right. Everything. It's, it's just it's one of my favorites it's just it's brilliant i mean you could look at it and say some of the, the effects are a bit hokey but it just all adds to the charm of it but yul brynner as the man in black it's just and the music they have when he's walking and i love the walk he does he's got like his little well it was riding on the whole fact he was in the magnificent seven it's the same outfit and everything like that but he's just right he has his uh, thumbs in his belt and just just walking chasing uh, the main guy it's just it's just perfect sci-fi it's brilliant it is. And, you know, I watched it not very long ago at all, um, and it holds up so well. I was afraid because I hadn't seen it in a few years. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Um, that, you know, that maybe it was, you know, that it was too cheesy or whatever, you know, but it, it just, it's still such a fantastic film. I mean, I, you know, obviously some of the special effects and whatnot, but as far as watching it goes, it's just as visceral and exciting to watch now as it was when I was a kid. And I just love it to pieces. Yeah. So that's on number two. Very good. All right. Joint number two. Well, I, I have a feeling that we're going to have a joint number one as well. In fact, I, <laughs> I know for a fact and just because of, you know, but um, I, since I will go first, uh, since I'm going first, I will go ahead and. And, and reveal my pick, and it is, of course, <sighs> da, 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 da. The Sting. Yes. Was I right? Yes, you're right. Of course. I know you're a big fan of that movie. We just did it in one of our bonus episodes not that long ago, and it's such a great movie. I mean, first yeah. of all, we all know what a big Robert Redford fan I am. I'm also a big Paul Newman fan. Redford yeah. and Newman together. I mean, when they when they team up, they only create some of the best movies of all time. You know, like The Sting yeah. and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And uh, but you know, I've always loved like con movies. You know, or like the con jobs and swindles and stuff. And and this movie just gets everything right. It's, I mean. It's yeah, Newman it's, the and best, Redford. it's the best common film, isn't it? Oh, by, hands down. I mean, hands down. Yeah. You know, the two of them together are magical. You know, there's the music. There's that song. You know, there's this great con. I mean, it's just a perfect film, in my opinion. Yeah, and Robert Shaw is the, the big bad boss, mob boss to take him down. It's just everything about it. I just, every time you're watching it as well, you just love all the bits where, the, you know, they're, they're rubbing the nose. That's the signal. Yep. And so I just like the way you go. You see all the detail they're doing as well. And it's just, you know, setting up the whole con. And even though you're seeing how they're setting it up, you're still not seeing everything. And it's just, ah. Yes, yes, exactly. When they reveal how they pull everything yeah. off, you know, it's just, it's just so well done, you know. Yeah. Even though when you're watching it as well, even though you've seen it before, watching it again and you know, how they did it, what they did. Every time you saw there going, oh, oh, yeah. Oh. It's just <laughs> yep. one of those. You're just constantly picking up bits and it's uh – Oh, it's a wonderful film. Yes. You know, it's funny because it is one of those ones where I, you know, every few years or so I'll rewatch it. And I, I find it's one of those movies where I sort of forget everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In between. Yeah, so yeah. every time I watch it, it's almost like watching it for the first time again. Um, so I can sort of, you know, kind of uh, refall for everything, you know, over again. And um, and I love that about it. It's just it's like watching a new film every time I see it. And, and yet it's also a beloved, comfortable, familiar film, you know. Oh, definitely. And it's a beautifully well made and it's just the set the set dressing and everything. You just get everything spot on. Exactly. So obviously we are fans of The Sting. If you have not seen it for any reason, please do yourself a favor and watch it. It, it is really one of the greats. Oh, it certainly is. Definitely. That's why it's our number one that's of right. 1973. Very good. So that's 1973 in a nutshell. Some great films. Obviously we had a lot of similar choices on our list. I think this might have been one of our most synergistic lists yet. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, but as we say, there was so many, like you mentioned, Don't Look Now. There's that almost made my list, but it's there's lots of back and forth on mine. But uh, a great year for film. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. So, so that's 1973. Hopefully, you uh, had some some similar picks in your list, or maybe some different ones. Uh, if you did, feel free to let us know. Yes, uh, you can let us. You can get in touch with us on social media, Facebook and Twitter, and there's also an email. Yes, you can email us directly at afterthending at verizon.net. So, Phil, why don't you tell people what we have in store for them next week? Next week, we'll be doing the top 10 films of 1940, and we'll be going after the ending of 
any given Sunday and the replacements, which uh, have a theme going on there. Yeah, well, it's uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's almost time for the Super Bowl, which, as we all know, is one of the biggest sporting events um, ever. And I am a football fanatic or an American football fanatic if you're overseas. So I sort of forced this on Phil and said, "Guess what, Phil? <laughs> We're doing some football movies to to tie into the Super Bowl." Um, so uh, you know, it's, I, I'm... it's not football; they're not kicking it <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so uh, so two great movies about about America. American football or football, however you want to call it. I'm just going to say football. People know what I mean. And, uh, you know, I just figured since the Super Bowl is coming and that's a pretty big deal that gets a lot of attention around the world, we'd kind of tie into that a little bit and have some fun uh, doing some some football after the endings. So uh, so even if you're not a football fan, these are still, still these are still good movies that you can enjoy. And uh, we will uh, make sure that our endings are not too too football centric. Well, I do. I don't mind American football. I've watched a bit. I went to see uh, our American football match when he played down in Wembley. It was the the Forty Niners versus the Dolphins many years ago. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. It was oh, good, I'm good so laugh. jealous, dude. You, you know, I'm a Forty Niners fan. Yeah, I know, I know. But uh, uh, we were we were supporting the Dolphins at the time. Ah, uh, because mm. uh, we've been to Miami. That was mm. no, we, we haven't been to Miami. We've been to Florida. You know what, That's Phil? I, it's going to take me a little time to get over this. But I'm we just didn't saying. really know. I'm just, know. you know, listen. <laughs> Never mind the fact that, you know, you were 20-some-odd years away from meeting me. But <laughs> Yeah. I was there thinking, God, if I ever meet an American, I hope he's supposed to 49ers so I can rub it in his face. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I enjoyed the game. I used to watch it as well. I used to be on uh, Channel 4 over here. I used to enjoy watching it. And I do like, as we said before, I do like a, a, a sports movie. Yes, yes, exactly. And American football movies are often pretty good. Yeah. And I'm looking forward. I'm going to watch The Replacements this weekend, so I, I'm looking forward to doing that. Yeah, it's a, it's a movie I love, so I think we'll have a lot of fun with that. So make sure you join us for that. Um, but on that note, I think it's time to wrap things up. So as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I am Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the Ending. Welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And sorry, I already, already lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> Uh, let's see. Okay, so I'm Phil Edwards. Phil, Phil, I don't know. I don't know. It always helps to have something to say, but I find I don't often have something. <laughs> Especially when you're doing a podcast and there's never. Yeah, else. yeah. You know, that's uh, that's that's usually a a good a good starting point at least. So. <laughs> Just as the judge is about to hand down a guilty verdict, a court bailiff named Sarah quiet quiet. Why can't I talk tonight? <laughs> a court bailiff named Sarah quietly enters the courtroom to to. Oh my God. <laughs> All right. Well, um, well, uh, blah, blah, blah. apparently I'm just useless tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're like tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a, a story I wanted to tell you about Minority Report. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And then I forgot. So, so this was shortly after Minority Report had come out on video, and some friends of ours invited us over, and they said, "Why don't you bring a movie over?" And so we went to the, you know, what was then the video store. We picked out. We saw Minority Report was out. We hadn't seen it yet. You know, Tom Cruise, you know, all this good stuff should be a great film. So we picked it out, take it over to their house. And we're watching this movie. Now, you've seen the movie, right, Phil? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know that once the character of Anne Lively gets introduced, yeah. they then mention her, I don't know, 70 or 80 times, it seems like at least. You know what I mean? Like she's mentioned pretty regularly throughout the rest of the film, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're watching this movie with this other couple and we get to like the very end of the film. Yeah. And the guy in the couple... At this point, like like literally five minutes from the end of the film, goes, "Who's Anne Lively?" <laughs> and I'm like, "The the character they've been talking about for half the movie. They've said her name like 27 times. How do you like not like?" Yeah, that's... and that was when I stopped like renting movies for people with people that I hadn't seen before because I was like so flabbergasted by this. <laughs> what the hell? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like watching Star Wars and going, "Who's Obi Wan Kenobi?" You know, like like. Luke who? I mean, Luke who? Right. Not as iconic, obviously, but it, it's not like they don't mention her name just once or twice. I mean, they mention her name several times throughout the film. So anyway, uh, that was just, I always remember when I think of Minority Report, I always think of, who's Anne Lively? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Woo! Super Bowl, baby.